SAFM, leading the conversation. Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. Professor Alex Fanden Hierfer, who's a public health expert, as well as the chair of the field of Social Security Systems Administration and Management Studies at Witt School of Governance, joins me for this conversation. South Africa had signed multiple contracts with multiple pharmaceutical companies, uh, Oxford, AstraZeneca, uh, Johnson & Johnson, um, as well as Pfizer. Um, and we were overcharged just on just cost of these things. We were overcharged. We were charged more for these vaccines than any other of the European countries that paid for any of these vaccines. In fact, some of the guarantees that we had to pay were ridiculous. In fact, we paid as much as a upfront guarantee of 1.8 billion rand to Johnson & Johnson. And there was no guarantee that we would receive the vaccine or receive it on time. Just so that we can enter the contract. There was a guarantee needed of 1.8 billion rand, with payment liabilities going up until into the trillions of rands. In fact, the very specific one where the guarantee, or at least the, the upfront guarantee, was 1.8 billion, the government had to pay in excess of, or at least the liability attached to the contract, exceeded a trillion rand. A number, figure so devastating that it, if it were to be the case that we had to pay that liability, would have collapsed our economy, quite literally. In fact, the multi-group study argues that it puts our sovereignty at at stake, leaves it vulnerable. Professor Alex, do you share that sentiment? Well, I, I, so I haven't looked at the terms of the agreement which involved these guarantees and what they would mean. I have looked at the pricing uh, for all of the contracts that was Pfizer, uh, essentially J&J, AstraZeneca and COVAX. And I'd actually published a costing evaluation with a price per dose um, before these purchase agreements were entered into. And the pricing that, that I had um, assumed we would come up with was sort of broadly in the range of what we ended up paying. Um, so it's so it, it, it's not clear to me that we would have been able to better these prices um, in the yeah. when we were sitting in the emergency at that stage. So uh, Pfizer at ten dollars, Johnson and Johnson at ten dollars, and AstraZeneca ultimately agreed to at five point two dollars, all at different periods and different times. Uh, was uh, was kind of in the range of what I'd basically expected based on inter what was essentially information that was available in the public domain, where a lot of these companies actually try to keep their prices secret, which is very often quite problematic. Yeah. Johnson & Johnson charged us 15% more than they had charged the EU. Is there any argument that can justify that overcharge? Uh, nothing really. I mean, what they would regard this as, as, as a negotiation. And essentially, if you're over a barrel, you'll pay more. Uh, so this is typical of sort of market segmentation. There wasn't any kind of uh, leverage that government clearly ad attempted to hold over Johnson & Johnson for these contracts. Now, we were also in the process of, um, we had you know, a, 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 a Aspen Pharmacare doing the, the sort of fill and finish for about 300 million doses in the Eastern Cape yeah. and uh, of Johnson & Johnson's, all of which was going to be exported. So it so part of this 
issue is really what was government doing all the way through and how did it apply its leverage? Because in these contracts, you really have to be able to um, uh, uh, kind of threaten something in a way. But because these agreements were all, um, you know, finalized in in confidence, in secret, yeah. uh, there wasn't much public leverage that they could uh, use. But they what what I had seen was these the ten dollars were the public prices that were available. My my own analysis had J and J at ten dollars. Um, so the only issue is could have they have the improved EU, on it? The uh, EU paid uh, eight dollars fifty cents for the exact J and J dose. In fact, when it comes to the Pfizer dose, uh, we would charge ten dollars per dose, while Pfizer sold it to. Uh, the African Union, although we got some of that, not a lot of it, but it charged the African Union uh, $6.75 for the exact same dosage. Um, that's a price differential of a, a third of the price. So they charge us a third more than they had charged them. Uh, the Serum Institute charged South Africa $5.35 a dose, which was two and a half times more than it charged the EU. Um, which which was significantly less than uh, $3.50 for that dose. Um, it, these numbers make it seem like South Africa got the raw end of the deal, globally speaking. Well, I think that they they basically got a volume a volume based surcharge. I mean, they weren't South Africa is not a very high volume purchaser at this stage, so they clearly gave discounts to those purchasers who would have been the preferred contractors. And I think that this was certainly the concern was that we weren't going to access any vaccines during a period in which we were going to be facing multiple waves of COVID. And we immediately had to vaccinate our healthcare workers in the early part of 2021. Yeah. And government hadn't taken any action. So they were very much on the back foot in the negotiations because they'd basically done very little work in 2020. So when they went into this, they were under huge public pressure to get yeah. these contracts sorted out. And the urgency was to get the doses in to South Africa before the waves go through. got through. And in fact, just to note on the J&J &J vaccines, the healthcare workers were ultimately vaccinated with free vaccines yeah. from Johnson & Johnson in that the doses were effect. They agreed to provide trial doses. And so the initial phase that, that vaccinated the healthcare workers uh, were for doses that couldn't be charged for. So probably J&J &J built in some kind of fee structure for recovery of the initial doses that they put through in the Sasanke uh, so-called trial. Yeah. Phase one of the uh, of the of the vaccination process, um, and the the other issue of this, it, it, Covax didn't necessarily give us any better pricing at all than these other uh, agreements as well. So it's we we essentially did pay much more than than other countries, uh, but it's also important that AstraZeneca we paid about five point two dollars, and we we threw, we basically didn't use them. So we had potentially access to 1.5 million doses with a potential additional 1.5. Can, can um, we pause and speak to that? But we didn't right? use them. Yeah. Can we pause and speak to that? Because one, in, in, in some of these contracts, the producers, the pharmaceutical companies and the manufacturers of these vaccines had barred the country from donating or reselling any excess doses 
that it may have had, especially when, of course, given that these things were time sensitive, if it was approaching, um, let's say, expiry date in the next 30 days, and we thought hey, it may be prudent to donate it to, I don't know, a neighboring country like Zimbabwe or Lesotho, uh, that the, the country was barred, contractually barred from doing that. Is that a usual and ordinary tool uh, in, in, in pharmaceutical negotiations? Or is it something that you think was so, that, that you think was potentially egregious? Um, I think it is egregious, but it is normal. <laughs> what they do is they segment markets. So the pharmaceutical manufacturers, uh, when, when I talk about segmenting a market, what they do is that they will try and charge what a particular market will bear. So if you've got a lower income country selling largely the medicines into an out-of-pocket market where people are paying out-of-pocket, um, or we, you know, we government is not a very significant purchaser. They might discount the prices into that environment, but they, then they have to ensure that when they're selling into that environment, people don't round trip it back into another country, which is being charged a much higher price. So, um, one very senior um, executive from a pharmaceutical manufacturer in the sort of uh, uh, um, late 1990s is having a discussion about antiretrovirals and the antiretrovirals that were available at the time were very, very highly priced. And they said they would be very happy to discount them into the South African market provided uh, they couldn't be resold into the US market because they were selling uh, the, the, the antiretroviral at very, very high prices in that market. So what they attempt to do is really uh, price, take take profits in markets that can bear it, and uh, they will discount them in markets that can't. They will take into account volume, but part of the issue is that you never get to see what the real negotiated price is in many countries. So if you go to um, uh, Australia, you might have a, a kind of a list or a publicly available price, but they've actually negotiated a very significant discount directly, but on the basis that they keep it completely secret from any other country. So nobody gets to see what the real price is that was charged. And they do that to stop reference pricing, uh, to which breaks down these market segments. What, what, so what, is, are, what is reference pricing? So South Africa attempted to introduce a reference pricing framework, international benchmarking, which would be to actually compel prices to be set at, uh, at, at where the prices are best internationally for the generic equivalent or the therapeutic equivalent of a particular medicine, but in particular for a, a generic equivalent. In other words, where the molecule is the same, the drug is the same, even if it's got a different name. So the, uh, what, so the reference pricing system would then break down the segmentation. In other words, where they've sold into a lower income market and discounted the prices, now you, South Africa, would take advantage of that and say you're selling it there for the price. You are now required to sell it at that price in the market. So these are, there are various techniques like that. Um, Ooh, it seems like uh, Professor Alex, we just lost you there for a second. Orientation from sorry. Sorry, we just lost yeah, you there sorry. for a second. The line isn't very stable. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break and see if we can stabilize that telephone line there. I'm taking your reactions to this. Give me a call, 086-000-2032. 086-000-2032. I'm taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. Let's take a quick break. 
Thank you so much for your time. Really, really do appreciate it. Uh, we're discussing the COVID-19 vaccines, those contracts that finally been made public. We now know how much we paid uh, for those vaccines, and we know what the terms and conditions attached to it was. Professor Alex Funden Hierford, who's a public health expert, is uh, in this conversation with me this evening. Is there anything we learned, uh, Alex, about uh, pandemic preparedness on the one hand and contract negotiating during uh, time-sensitive pandemics uh, from these contracts? Is there any sort of uh, big key lessons that we need to, one, build policies and legislation around? Or was it just a matter of it was unfortunate that you were stuck in a corner and you were given tough terms and conditions and tough pricing? Just got to suck it up and charge it to the game. Well, uh, there's a question as to whether or not South Africa should have been begun negotiations for um, vaccines earlier on. That would have involved a degree of risk because a lot of the vaccines went into trials during 2020. And so there was uncertainty in the later later period of 2020 whether those um, vaccines would actually work. So, uh, but the manufacturers were requesting down payments because they were they were essentially developing these vaccines at risk. So they wanted risk reduction uh, when there was uncertainty about whether or not they would succeed. And when you've got this accelerated process of vaccine development, um, you, the, we are dealing with a, a, a sort of a global risk. So the question is whether we should have got into that game earlier. And a number of countries did that are smaller than South Africa, like Israel. And they secured doses of uh, Pfizer very early on. And uh, they focused, and you can focus, depending on the emergency, you, you, you might diminish, you might offset price. You might be prepared to, to pay a higher price because the cost of not actually vaccinating early is, um, is greater than, vac- than getting a cheaper price and vaccinating later. So that's a, that's a judgment call one makes, and um, and I think that South Africa should have got into the game during early in 2020 and taken some risk. Uh, the that's that's the one issue. Whether or not we could have been developing our own vaccines is another question, because the problem in the South African context is if we take the one method of generating vaccines, the unit costs are very high. If our only market is South Africa. And so it just just doesn't pay. Yeah. So the so you've got to have to have a, an an industrial policy, an industrial strategy, that says we've got to develop global reach for an investment in vaccine development and production as part of a domestic resilience strategy, but also a, an industrial policy. In other words, it's an export, which is where the Serum Institute comes in. That's what India has done there. They're not necessarily focusing on production for the local market. The Serum Institute is, is producing for the global market, not just for India, not even just for Asia. And uh, they and as, as a consequence, they've got massive scale, which allows them to reduce the unit cost of production. We can't produce for the South African market at anywhere near the prices that the Serum Institute could. So that becomes a longer-term strategy if we want to build in resilience so that we can generate and produce and make available in our region. We've, we've got to think very carefully and long-term about that. We probably can develop the um, certain vaccines at lower cost on the newer, uh, let's say, on the, the types of vaccines like that were developed by Pfizer. Those ones uh, can actually be produced more cheaply 
because uh, of the, the, the sort of the more advanced technology behind them. So I think that those are, are serious things that we need to look at. But there are so many other issues in the case of pandemic resilience. We've got to be able to test early. We've got to be able to identify a new virus very fast. We've got to be able to test and trace. In the case of these kinds of diseases, um, the infections transmit so rapidly yeah. that they overwhelm conventional test and trace. But if there's an opportunity to isolate and um, prevent the virus from spreading, it, you really have to have a very rapid response framework, much faster than what we've got. But no country in the world was really able to do yeah. that. And China kind of did it. But, but then they had to, it just fell apart because the virus escaped from China, infected the rest of the world, and then reinfected China. And so there's, with a virus like this, there's no preventive defense other than protecting your high risk populations. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very complex strategy that we've got to have. But I think we do have to have a number of facilities and capabilities that are regionally based. I just don't – South Africa hasn't quite got yeah. it together to create um, something that is commercially viable, domestically located, and available for the region. Yeah. Plus, we haven't been able to secure adequate agreements within the region and Africa that is for offtake agreements so that we could get scale in production for facilities that are located here. So we are not necessarily even supported by the rest of Africa. They will buy from Europe. And if they don't buy from the facilities we set up here, then we're stuck with the South African market. Mm. So it's, it is, it's not straightforward. But um, the only alternative strategy is get in fast and take some risk when you're dealing with a, a, a disease like this. Take yeah. some risk, get in fast, book the doses early and take your chances. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I guess it, it, it once again uh, brings into stark contrast the need uh, for better intellectual property laws around vaccines, especially during a time of a pandemic. Um, the West, as well as the pharmaceutical companies in the West, weren't willing to uh, relinquish uh, the, the uh, you know, IP rights around these things to allow countries to produce and manufacture cheap rates, generics. Uh, and of course, that was a great sticking point at the World Trade Organizations and the World Health Organizations uh, when the United Nations convened various meetings around these sort of things. Um, and I, once, one gets the sense that President Ramaphosa was hoping to win that battle. He got the support of the White House, but unfortunately that yielded absolutely nothing. Um, had that been a successful campaign, um, I guess you and I would have been having a different conversation right now. I think it's a, it's a, the issue is uh, IP is one issue. The actual ability to produce and then to uh, uh, and then purchase locally, uh, make available locally is important. For instance, we were producing uh, through Aspen Pharmacare 300 doses of Johnson and Johnson, uh, 300 million doses in a year. So it massively exceeded our requirement. Not one of those doses was designated for South Africa. And this is part of the problem is that, in fact, we had that uh, availability, but Aspen was indicating they weren't in control of the contract. They were merely a, manu uh, a final manufacturer for Johnson & Johnson. The, the export agreements were Johnson & Johnson's, not Aspen's. And uh, now in other countries, for instance, in Europe, 
they um, the governments basically clamped down on that. They prohibited exports. India itself also at a point in time prohibited further exports by the Serum Institute of AstraZeneca because they were needed for the second wave in India, which was devastating there. So we, uh, it, it's, it's, it's never straightforward. And it's, it's a, what I would say is that you really need to have quite smart and adaptable government in a situation like this. I'm not sure we were, we were that smart and ahead of the game um, because you actually need to keep making decisions with in, the, in, a, in a rapidly changing set of circumstances. And you need to be quite capable, and, and we weren't. So we needed to basically be able to say we are not completely sure um, of A, B, C, and D. And in that, with that uncertainty, we must still make a decision. We yeah. didn't. We waited for uh, finality on issues. So when we threw away AstraZeneca, we, uh, we threw away 1.5 million doses. That would have been quite useful in vaccinating people. And now we know it doesn't, most of the vaccines don't protect against reinfection or infection. You're not protected if you were infected before from reinfection, but it is in many, it is the cellular less response you're looking for, the long term, longer term protection that prevents severe illness. And that's the important feature of the vaccine. So, vaccinate with anything <laughs> is is important at, a, at an early stage in a pandemic like that that's how you deal with uncertainty and yeah. uh, and 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 double up on the doses down the line with different uh, vaccines as and when you can so I, I would have i would have said i'm not totally um absolving government of signing these contracts i think that uh, we we really the, we were going to end up by the end of 2021 with a glut of vaccines around the world. And so, but at that stage, we would have had another uh, uh, 100,000 people dead. Yeah. So it, it really wasn't, you, you really had to, had to prioritize getting this stuff out early and to the most vulnerable first. I think we did a, an aspect of that, but a hell of a lot of people died in South Africa who could have been saved. Yeah. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Professor Alex Funden here for really, really do appreciate it. Taking your reactions to that, give me a call 086-000-2032, 086-000-2032. I'm taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107, 0614-104-107. Let's take a break.